Good morning. morning. There we go. Let's try it again. Good morning. morning. There we are. I know everybody's distracted. It's fun. You're kind of waiting for the kids to do something as they exit, right? Because that's always the best time, and when they make the best show is when they're leaving. Anyways, uh, it's good to be here with you guys again um, as we continue to to dive into some of the parables. Uh, last week, we, we looked at the parable of the unforgiving servant, and I, I said that when I began to read that parable, I, I read it with a bit of dread and because it was, it was a heavy parable, right? Uh, judgment is always a heavy conversation. And I, I hope this week you've wrestled with that, and if you felt any sense of conviction in that, that you've also felt no condemnation. Um, and I hope that you were able to remember that from the parable of the sower that the creator of the universe who loves us enough to die to himself sows extravagantly in our lives, right? And he continues to call us back to life with God even in the midst of our sinfulness and our failures and our, our messiness, right? Um, and this week, I, I, I thought I knew what we were going to talk about. Uh, you know, I thought we were going to talk about uh, the parable of the wedding banquet, banquet, because um, I've taught from it before. I love it. It's one of my favorites. Uh, but you know what? The one in the Gospel of Luke is a beautiful parable. But it turns out the one in the Gospel of Matthew, the one that I inadvertently chose by accident is quite a different story. One scholar said, going from the parable in Luke to the parable in Matthew is like going from a park to a labyrinth. Uh, or as another, this guy, it's like this parable expert, Clyde Snodgrass, which is a fantastic name. Um, he says, Matthew's version is enough to make any interpreter go weak in the knees. I consider it among, among the most difficult parables of all. As I was diving into this over the last few weeks, it's just like, why would I do this to myself? You know, because when I listed out the parables, I was familiar with the Luke one, and I just thought the Matthew one was the same. So this has been a fun adventure into something I didn't even know was in there. I did now that you've, I've studied it a bit more, but uh, I was unaware. So I'm sorry for doing this to myself, and I'm sorry for doing this to you, but this week is heavy again. Um... And we're not going to do a compare and contrast. I, I'm convinced that these two parables are different. Uh, they have some similar st stories. Some people like to say they're the same one. They have some similar imagery. But the context, the messages are just so drastically different. And other than alerting to the fact that they both exist, and maybe you would be interested in taking some time to compare the two on your own, we're not going to talk about the one in Luke at all. Um, but I think if you do want to get into it and understand that there's a difference, that could be a fun little study for you this week. And th this parable in Matthew, there's a number of, of approaches to this, this parable of the wedding banquet in Matthew. Um, some scholars actually suggest just ignoring it entirely. That gives you any idea of how difficult it is. Um, others like to read it kind of like a literal prophecy about Jerusalem and end times. And I'll tell you, when I read it, I struggle with both of these approaches. First, because I think the first one is just lazy. To ignore anything that's in Scripture just because we don't like it, it's problematic. Um, 
And it just doesn't help us. I understand that there's lots in there. It's kind of like a landmine. You never know what you're going to find. Uh, but we, we don't want to do that. It's just lazy. And the second one, when you read it as a, as a prophetic piece about Jerusalem, it's really easy to end up in this kind of anti-Semitic thought process. Um, and one of, there's a teacher in my past that I loved that said, anytime you read the scriptures and you find yourself thinking that any of the Jewish people were wrong or idiots or uh, less than Gentiles, you probably need to reevaluate what you're reading. Um, God didn't come to exclude Jewish people from his salvation, right? He came to, he, they were his primary use and he came to expand it into the Gentile world. We get to be here because of that expansion, but not at the exclusion of another people group, right? So, as I found that, I was, and I was looking at this, this parable, I was compelled to look at this from the, the perspective of the audience that you have here. And if you look at the context, this is the third of three parables, and we're not going to look at all three because, again, it's just too much. But what Jesus is teaching to a crowd, but specifically in this crowd, it's noted that there's Pharisees and religious leaders of the day. And at the end of hearing this parable, because it's the third of, of three, but at the end of this, they respond by saying, we need to trap Jesus in his words and get him to say something that is utterly damaging. And I think if you read it, that the Pharisees, when they heard this parable, felt like that was a legitimate response that they needed to make discredit Jesus. When you approach this parable this way, you start to read it a little bit different. Right? And so what I want you to do this morning is, as we read it together, I want you to, to imagine that the religious leaders, as they hear this, are upset by it. And if you find that difficult, imagine how it might upset you. Okay? Always a fun thing to do whenever you read scripture, especially uh, in the, the Gospels, is put yourself in the, sh in the, the shoes of the Pharisees. Because unfortunately, we have a lot more in common than, with them than we like to admit. Okay? So, let's read it together. So it's Matthew 22, and we're starting at verse 1, and we'll read to verse 14. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come. But they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened calf have been butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners, invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the street servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. 
But then the came king in, came in to see the guests. He noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asks, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot, throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. Right? That's intense. All right, and it start it opening verses. The first five verses they're quite palatable. The, the, there's a party. That's good news, and it's a banquet, and it's to celebrate the king's son's wedding, and people are invited. Okay, this is this all makes sense for us so far. Sadly, that those who are invited refuse to come. Okay, so that's the f- first. Jesus open op- opens up by speaking about this rejection of the. Re- what I'd say is the rejection of the religious leaders to his invitation to believe in him as their Messiah and as a Savior. The invitation in the parable goes out again. Good news, right? Who doesn't like second chances? And the stakes are raised, right? There's a bit more qualification. We're told that everything is ready. Like, this isn't an invitation to something that's coming. It's ready. The party is starting. The, the butchering is done. The food is ready. The king just needs the, peop- the invitees to come. But again, the invitation is rejected. And some of the invitee, the people who are invited, go to work in their field, others in their businesses. But still others reject the inv- But they go to, sorry, they go to work in their field or their businesses, which aren't evil or wrong things, but it's still a rejection of the invitation, right? The other people who stay in the city, and this is where the parable takes its first dramatic turn, right? The people who stay in the city, the ones who remained, the people who are invited, who didn't go to their fields or businesses, seize the king's servants, mistreat them, and kill them. Jesus, in telling the parable, emphasizes the rejection. It's not just people being too busy, right? It's not just them seeking work and wealth. in a kind of a passive rejection, there's actually an active and pointed rejection of the invitation as well in this, right? The messengers are murdered. And Jesus probably could have made his point another way, but to drive it home, to emphasize in point, he uses heaps of murder and destruction in this parable. Okay, because this is the absurdity of it all, the wrongness of it all, of the response to to the invitation. You see, these, these people were, would have been the expected invitees. These would have been the people who you would expect to see at a royal wedding. The rich, the powerful, the famous, the, the social well-to-do, and probably the religious leaders. People who were used to power, position, and authority. And there were, I think they're actually all of us who ever live in kind of the dual certainties that our good works, good works, good works will earn the right for us to attend the wedding feast, and the other certainty that God's good nature will release us from having to sit through it if we happen to have other plans. 
and since we could not be more wrong, since the, the people who are invited, the religious leaders, could not be more wrong about either of these certainties, Jesus insists on displaying them as dead wrong. This is the destruction of the city. It has to be so far removed from our thinking. And Jesus makes a strong point that first, salvation is not by works, a belief often propagated by um, the religious leaders at the time. And secondly, that the heavenly banquet is not an option. The outside this party that we're invited to, that Jesus is inviting people to, that there is no life. And so Jesus has the king in the parable proceed with plan B, which is fun because for God it was always plan A, I think. The king says to the servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. And the servants went and gathered the good as well as the bad. This, this detail is not unique to this parable, right? Uh, it's actually a distinctive and continuing feature of Jesus' ministry and message. We saw it in the parable of the sower a couple weeks ago, this extravagant sower sowing indiscriminately. Or back in the summer when we looked at the mustard seed and the prodigal sons, Jesus continually goes out of his way to make room for unexpected, unexpected people, for both the good and the bad to be at the wedding banquet, which is really good news for us, right? At least I hope you're in the same boat as I am because I hope you are also good and bad. <laughs> and if you're not, if, you're, if you think you're just bad, I'm sorry, you have some good in you. And if you think you're just good, I'm really sorry. The Pharisees listening to this parable, and many of us even today, we struggle with this, right? We have this idea that bad deeds need to be removed before God will have anything to do with us. But what Jesus is saying yet again is that the badness, the evilness that is present is not a problem for the kingdom of heaven. And it's not a problem because it's already been defeated by Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection. The only thing that is actually a problem here is, is this faithfulness, faithless non-acceptance of an invitation. The king invites the good and the bad. Jesus invites us all while we were yet sinners and simply asks us to trust in the invitation that he's given us. And we see in the parable that is exactly what happens. The wedding hall was filled with guests. Which makes sense. Imagine yourself being just a regular person, not one of the well-to-do. And you've heard stories about this, this wedding and the grand banquet that's supposed to take place. And all of a sudden, you're approached by a messenger from the king who says, we got room, want to come? Most of us would go. Even for like, the highly introverted like me, I would be very curious. Right? But it's at this point that we kind of need to pause, and it, there's a detail of the story, a detail that's made likely, and we could easily assume, but isn't explicit in the parable. See, it, it wasn't an uncommon custom of the time that when great banquets were held, the king or emperor would actually supply clothing for guests. So when you arrived, 
you were given something to wear. And since the expected invitees who would have, if anybody in society would have had the right thing to wear to a royal wedding, weren't the ones at the wedding, and they rejected the invitation, it ended up just being the good and the bad and the regulars. It's very likely that they would have never had the attire appropriate for such an occasion. And it's even more likely that this detail would have gone unsaid and been unheard. Uh, like it would have gone unsaid, but it wouldn't have been unheard by the people there because it would have been this common practice. So the people would have expected that at the banquet, clothing would be provided. And I wonder too that when Paul was writing to the Colossians, if this wasn't kind of in his thought process, right? And I think this, this passage from Colossians 3 gives, gives some clarity to, to the, this idea of the clothing being provided. Don't lie to one another. You're done with that old life. It's like a filthy set of ill-fitting clothes you stripped off and put in the fire. Now you're dressed in a new wardrobe. Every item of your new way of life is custom made by the creator with his label on it. All the old fashions are now obsolete. Words like Jewish and non-Jewish, religious and irreligious, insider and outsider, uncivilized and, and uncouth, slave and free mean nothing. From now on, everyone is defined by Christ. Everyone is included in Christ. So choose by God, for this new life of love, dress in the wardrobe God picked out for you, compassion, kindness, humility, quiet, strength, discipline. Be even-tempered, content with second place, quick to forgive an offense. Forgive as quickly and completely as the master forgave you. And regardless of what else you put on, wear love. It's your basic, all-purpose garment. Never be without it. This imagery of, of the clothing, I think, is quite beautiful and compelling when I think about it in context of this parable. And I love how the wardrobe in the parable is supplied by King, and the garments that Paul talks about are provided by God, picked out by God. It's not something we provide or bring. And with this bit of detail and this way of thinking, we return to the parable and this this is where the king comes in, right? He's got it filled with people. He's invited. It's, he's excited. And he comes in to survey what is going on. And he sees the good and the bad at a party to end all parties, a wedding banquet where everyone is dressed in beautiful, extravagant, lovely garments. Except when the king walks through... The scene is marred by one character who happens to be totally out of character. And the king approaches him and asks, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? And th this word friend, it carries this tone. Friend. Right? It's got this harsh edge to it. It's like when we say fine. I'm fine. Right? It's how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? Right? You kind of, I don't know, I picture like Western moment right there, right? And it says the man was speechless. 
I wonder if, if Jesus had tweaked the, the story or the parable and made the man to respond differently. Like if the man had found, made any attempt at an excuse, if there would have been grace. I wonder if he had tied himself to the king in any way, if the king would have had mercy. But the speechlessness is telling. And we don't know why the man chose not to put on the wedding attire, but it's obvious that the king didn't run out. The king wouldn't have asked, right? And otherwise, the man would have had a good excuse and wouldn't have been speechless. But this man chose to attend, but thought for some reason he didn't need to change, that attendance would be enough, but that putting on the garments of love would be optional. It's like he was there, but not there, you know? Present, but not fully present. This man was willing to attend, but his refusal to believe, to trust in the king's invitation, trust in the requirement of new garments of love, meant that he couldn't say, and so he was cast out. And you know, Jesus isn't always this harsh. Often he makes special effort to extend extravagant grace and acceptance, right? And, and it could be that as he, we're nearing the end of the book of Matthew and Jesus is approaching his crucifixion, so maybe he felt the need to be more pointed in his parables. But I think more likely he was addressing his audience. He was addressing the religious leaders. And Jesus is always harsher on the religious It's because they're the, they were and they are the most apt to think that we can skip out on the invitation or that we don't need to put on garments of love. Often the most religious of us don't want anything to do with a system of salvation that is by grace through faith. We want our good behavior to be rewarded. And we want everyone else's poor behavior to be punished. We want our own sense of judgment and justice to be filled instead of trusting in God as the judge, instead of trusting in God's justice. And Jesus closes the parable with this line, for many are invited, but few are chosen. Lots of people like to put a lot of weight into this, but many are invited. There's There's not one person in the world, good, bad, or indifferent, who are not invited to the wedding feast to be a part of the kingdom. But few are chosen. It's the reality that there are not very many who actually end up living at the banquet. Jesus is making it clear to the religious leaders, to us, that our idea of being worthy in and of ourselves is flawed. And then our insistence on good works is actually a rejection of the invitation. Our insistence on judgment of others is a rejection of the invitation. We are saved only by our acceptance to a party that is of an invitation to a party that is already in progress. And God has paid for this party by laying down his own life. And that outside the party there is no life at all. So we return to the religious leaders who are hearing this parable. 
And this is when they say, this is the next line, that's when the Pharisees plotted a way to trap him into saying something damaging. The religious leaders believed that their good works made them worthy of the reward. The religious leaders had placed their energy into purity and separation from the world. And the religious leaders thought that love could be optional and conditional. And for us, if we find ourselves in the same shoes as the religious leaders, this parable is a reminder that the invitation to the banquet is something we cannot earn or be privileged to without Jesus. That the badness or our sinfulness or our failures or our messiness are not a problem for Jesus. And finally, that purity is isn't found through our own works and our own device. And it's a reminder that love is not an option for us. Today, I hope you hear that the invitation to be a part of the kingdom, and I hope you can have the humility to respond Let's pray. Lord, we ask for your help to hear, our, hear your invitation. Give us ears to hear and give us the courage to respond. May we be people who recognize our need for you. Help us to not rely on our own understanding, on our own sense of morality, or on our own good works. Give us a deep sense of your love for us and give us strength to love others, especially those we struggle with and those whom the rest of society has pushed away. Thank you for your love and for your forgiveness and for your invitation to be in the kingdom with you. Amen.